This episode was recorded after the Taliban took over the whole of Afghanistan. This is Jamal's story. He's an Afghan who chose to stay in Kabul after the Taliban took over. He's not an archaeologist or a cultural heritage specialist or even a historian. He's one of many resourceful, tireless, educated Afghans who have a capacity to reinvent themselves and keep going. He worked in journalism, in government, and on rural development projects. He's my colleague and a good friend. Jamal comes from an Afghan family that is fiercely protective of everything that is beautiful about the country. And this includes his mother's love of poetry and his father's beautiful book collection. In this episode, Laurie and I talk with Jamal about culture in Afghanistan, the traditions he lived through as a youngster, the destructions he witnessed during the country's civil war and the first Taliban regime, and his hopes for the future. I should add that his real name is not Jamal. Maybe one day we'll be able to use his real name, but with moderate and extreme Taliban factions struggling for power behind the scenes in Kabul and so much uncertainty, that day is not on the horizon. This is Monuments Woman with Laura Tedesco. I'm your host, George Gavrilis. Today, we're continuing on Laura's journey into Afghanistan. If you're new to this podcast, we recommend going back to start with episode one. For everyone else, welcome back. Let's jump in. With the Taliban taking over so suddenly the way it did, it seems that a lot of the work that Lori did for culture in Afghanistan, in some ways, it seems distant now and out of reach. I guess I'm looking to you, Jamal, to tell us whether this podcast matters to you or to people like you or to anyone out there. What's your sense as an Afghan? I think it matters to a great extent, especially now that we are not very sure of what the future holds. I can tell you from the 90s, I would constantly hear the news that piece of Afghanistan cultural heritage surfaced in the black market would appeared in the houses of Pakistani generals and they would proudly showcase it as their victory. Afghanistan cultural heritage surviving so much, especially in the past half century, to a huge extent is because of the people who remained committed to at least record what they are seeing, what they are knowing. We lost the borders of Mamian. So I think recording this now will really help Afghans connect with their cultural heritage, give them a sense of identity that Afghanistan is not just about mass exodus. It's not always about instability, change of regimes every 20 years, but also to negate the notion that Afghanistan is a tribal society, ungovernable. Our history says there were systems here, governments that gave way for civilizations to flourish. It's very important to connect Afghans to their cultural heritage. It always drove me crazy when people would refer to Afghanistan as the graveyard of empires, because it's been such a cradle of civilizations in many ways, in the way that Greece or Rome or Turkey have been. How do you feel when you hear people talking about Afghanistan as the graveyard of empires? To me, there are two sides to that notion that Afghanistan is the graveyard of empires. It's a matter of pride on the one hand that we do not accept external influence you know, in a blanket manner, but especially in our contemporary history, it has militarized our society. 
this very notion of behavior of empires, the Afghans, who love their weapon, and they are portrayed constantly with a weapon beside them and calling the association with weapons is a cultural thing. This is not true. How so? What do you mean? The thing that really bothers me about this notion is this incentive for Afghans to constantly be on the lookout to pick fights and that they should not engage, choose a path of dialogue, but rather stay rigid in their positions. That is the part that I think really bothers me about the notion of the graveyard of empires. And I really don't buy in it. It is time to move on and to get armed with something else, that is the education. I think we need to stop that particular attribute to Afghans. We're talking about heritage and what may be at risk. One thing that I'm really worried about are all the young Afghans who work in the heritage sector, who have devoted many years of their lives to becoming specialists in their own rights as archaeologists, as museum curators, as architectural historians. And they have no opportunities right now. They want to leave, and I don't blame them one bit that they want to leave. And the hope is that maybe one day these young, educated, bright, thinking Afghans will be able to come back to their homeland. But the loss of this intellectual capital, the loss of these specialists, will be the greatest detriment to the preservation of Afghanistan's heritage, in my opinion. Yeah, the Taliban might go through and do something angry and ideologically skewed, thinking that it adheres to sort of Taliban ideology. But what I regard as the biggest threat now is that these talented Afghans who work in the heritage sector, they have no opportunities and they all want to leave. Laura, if I may add to your last point, which uh, I think in particular is very important. Please do. You see, the sad thing is that most of them did not get the opportunities that they deserved in the past 20 years as well because of the nepotism in the Ministry of Culture and Information. Mm -hmm. And now everything falling apart before their eyes until they have to leave this behind. Mm -hmm. I mean, can you imagine the pain that they must go through? I know a couple of these young Afghan archaeologists uh, who were trained in the past 20 years. And one of them, I was supposed to go with to Misainak in Logan province, which unfortunately didn't happen because the morning which we were supposed to go there, there was a mine explosion and two police soldiers mm -hmm. died of that on a roadside. This is an improvised explosive device on the road to Misainak? It was an IED most probably. Misainak was heavily guarded by the Afghan Public Protection Force, APPF. So uh, it was a rare opportunity for me to go and see inside uh, Misainak, uh, not only from afar. When did that happen? It was in 2018. And then that trip never happened. Right. So the Chinese are active there. They say it's the second largest copper mine in the world. Yeah. I hope that uh, I can go at some point. So Jamal, a couple of days ago in the Afghan press, like two days ago, I read a quote from the Taliban in Herat. I read this in Ariana News, and I was curious about this. It was translated into English, which is how I read it. 
that they plan to start restoring monuments in Herat. Do you think that's sincere? Do you think the Taliban are just saying they're going to protect and restore monuments in Herat for the internationals to feel more comfortable about their governance? Or do you think they are genuinely doing it to show Afghans that they care? What do you think? I think there are a couple of sides to this. First off, I think they are on a charm offensive, as you just said, mm-hmm. to sound sane and logical for the international audience in particular, mm-hmm. that they have changed their attitude towards the cultural heritage of Afghanistan, as they have on many other things. But that remains to be seen. I mean, when they rose to power back in the 90s, when they first came out of Kandahar and reached Ghazni province, they did not destroy anything or indicate along the way that they would destroy anything. But by 1999, when they learned that their efforts to be recognized at the UN was not working, they felt that they were being isolated. And it's very famous about Mullah Omar, who said, if the international community does not care about our present and future, if the international community does not have the right to discuss our past and what we do with it. And then they destroyed the borders of Bamiyan. I mean, there wasn't anything initially about it. It was a abrupt reaction. And I think they might do it again. They might. They might. So that's my take on it. Since we're talking about the Buddhas, you were a young teenager at the time when they were destroyed. What are your memories of that? I heard it in the evening of the day that it happened on BBC Persian broadcast on the radio that the Taliban had detonated the borders of Armenia by placing uh, explosives. Uh, I saw the video after the fall of the Taliban, the video of the destruction uh, of the borders. It just came as a shock but it wasn't something new. It came in the long line of a lot of other cultural heritage of Afghanistan being destroyed, being sold into black markets. It might sound beyond comprehension for you, Georgian Laura, but I don't know how I got to this conclusion. But you know, if Afghanistan cultural heritage gets destroyed inside Afghanistan, I feel more content than it being smuggled outside the country and put on sale. Wow. I don't know how I got here, but I feel fine if they are at the end of the day destroyed. And I feel like they met their end, at least in Afghanistan, and went to dust in Afghanistan. The dust is still here. That's that's a very deep sentiment, my friend. Yeah, that's heavy. I have to think about that. But I don't want them to just be on sale, because I feel that's part of my identity and our shared identity. Yeah. In Afghanistan. I just want it to be destroyed here if it's going to be destroyed. Yeah, and you mentioned that a lot of it went just across the border to Pakistan, which makes it doubly galling and upsetting to Afghans, of course. Absolutely. I would continue to read about it. In the years that there were just newspapers and radios to read and listen to, that something surfaced in Britain in the auctions. Yeah. And I heard that they were returning some of it. Uh, when the Taliban fell. I don't know if it uh, happened. It did, yeah. No, it did, it did. The British have returned a lot of material to Afghanistan. The Japanese have, the the Americans have. A lot has been returned and it is in Kabul now. All that material that was returned remains safeguarded in Kabul. 
I'm so glad to hear that, yeah. that that it actually happened. Yeah, I heard that there were plans to return them, but I did not know if they ever did. But this is very good news. I'm very happy to hear it. I was thinking also about what I have read about the decision-making that led up to the destruction of the Buddhas of Bamiyan, the decision-making on the part of the Taliban and their public statements around it and the efforts by the international community, Islamic leaders from Egypt, for example, others who work in the culture sector trying to convince the Taliban not to destroy the Buddhas. Even Nancy Dupree herself spoke to leaders of the Taliban at the time. I have heard her tell that story. But in the end, uh, none of the convincing worked because we all know what we saw in the video. We all know what they did. And you may know this, Jamal, Al-Qaeda was involved as well in the destruction of the Buddhas because they had better explosives expertise. Precisely. What I heard was that Al-Qaeda was not involved in the decision to destroy it, but they provided the manpower who would devise this explosive yep. material and plan where to put it. And the most painful part is that I read an interview by a local from Bamiyan posed to take holes in the statues of Bamiyan to place the explosives. I have tried so much to imagine and feel what that guy feels mm-hmm. when he said that he lives with a contradiction now. He cannot forgive himself, but he also knows that he was forced to do it. Because initially, the Taliban had tried to blew that with a couple of shells from a tank. Right. That apparently didn't work. So they sought uh, support from Al-Qaeda, or Al-Qaeda provided them the support on their own volition. There was a connection, yeah. Yeah. So the Al-Qaeda mastermind who had the ultimate explosives expertise, he's in jail now, by the way. And he's in jail not because of his participation in the destruction of the Buddhas of Bamiyan, but he's in jail for other bad things he's done. I think there's 60 different bad things that are on his rap sheet, wow. so to speak, for why he's in jail. Okay. But you know, another thing that I'm worried about is not just the sort of what we call the brain drain and all these young, talented, educated Afghans who work in the heritage preservation sector, but I'm also worried about ISIS in Afghanistan. We know they're there. And they destroy sites too. So it's just something that keeps me up at night. Sorry, Laura, you're referring to Palmyra in Syria, their destruction of that site, for example? Well, yes, not just in Syria, but ISIS destruction of sites in Iraq in many places. But the most headline grabbing were the sites in Syria and in Iraq. But we know they're present in Afghanistan, what they call ISK, I think ISKP. Islamic State, Khorasan province, and that they have, over the last couple of years, done some cultural destruction in Afghanistan. They have. They have, actually. Yeah, they have. They destroyed a shrine in Logar, a couple in Ghazni. And the most famous shrine, sorry for the interruption, was in Badakhshan province. They destroy cultural heritage based on general principle. Right. They are idols and were once worshipped and deserves to be destroyed. While with the Taliban, I think it's very much political mm-hmm. and religious as mm-hmm. difference. The branch of the ISIS here in Afghanistan would destroy them on general principle. Yeah, you're right. You're right. 
Jamal, we talk about culture in this podcast in terms of archaeological sites and tangible stuff, but a big part of culture is how we live it and what traditions we pass down. Your dad was a really important cultural force in your life. My late father, when I turned five, I would see less of him at home and around. Hmm. Why was that? That was the height of the war. This is back in 89 and uh, 90, and he would usually be in the front. Each time that he came back home, there were no phone lines, or a lot of them, to let us know uh, that he was coming home. So he would just appear one day, uh, after months and months, and he would come home. That would really be equal to Eid for us, or you know, New Year. Sure, like the Eid celebration, yeah. When he would be home, he spent most of his time around his folks. He left us a small library. And uh, as children, we would just go around him, uh, pick up his books, uh, put them up and down, even if he couldn't read it. That interaction with the books, I think it had its impact later. I recall this set of books that was called the, the Afghan Encyclopedia. And that had a lot of uh, these pictures on it uh, from different civilizations that passed through this region thousands of years back. And that always fascinated me. There were statues, there were coins, there were citadels. And he had other history books uh, that I later read and I'm still reading. I think it was for us to shape a sense of identity and maybe also to, to be able to see what the future might hold. Yeah, when the war came to the cities and the situation became tougher in the cities, you had told me once that your father had to sell many of his books, many of the books that he really loved. He did, uh, including the encyclopedia that he loved very much. And he sold it uh, among a huge collection of books. He never regretted selling other books. Uh, but he really did regret selling those encyclopedias. But he bought it again. You know, when Kabul fell on the 15th of August 2021, uh, time. a lot of people who, who did not have much other things to sell, including a lot of friends, they put up uh, the books for sale. And what does this tell you, George, apart from the you know economic hardship that these books are really coming handy, this tells you that Kabul has always had a very vibrant reading society. No matter how dire the situation got, Every little bookstore had hundreds and hundreds of members. And it was like small societies. Every book would still have a buyer. And every book would still be sold. I know that your mother is a very strong source of culture in your life because of her love of poetry. Tell us about that. My mother is an ethnic Tajik, my father is an ethnic Pashtun. So I have sort of been exposed to both cultures, Pashtun and Tajik cultures of Afghanistan. The many, many diverse ethnicities that we have in Afghanistan. My mother is actually from a family of poets. The village that she's coming from in the north of Kabul is named after her great-great-grandfather. She has nine sisters, and she would recall all these musical pieces that they would compose and they would sing in their big fortress or compound. And they would use this musical instrument. It's a circle, very much similar to drum, but the other side is not covered. So it's only one-sided. That was very famous with women and 
singing and poetry. Uh, poetry is slowly, slowly fading away in the traditional sense, but I know the uh, educated Afghan girls right now, they are bringing it in another form. Wait, Jamal, you said that young Afghan girls are bringing poetry in another form? Is that what you said? Yes, I said precisely that. And what is this other form? That's really interesting. What is it? Yeah, precisely. The poetry in Persian in particular has all these rules where everything has to rhyme and grammar around it is so complicated. Mm -hmm. But this new style of mm -hmm. poetry, it is sort of free. It doesn't have to follow a particular set of rules. And it gives uh, really a lot of freedom, I think, to the poet or to the writer to put out their ideas on the paper, which is called white mm -hmm. poetry. And I think that has helped mm -hmm. a lot of Afghan girls to stick to poetry. Mm -hmm. I didn't know about that. That's fascinating. There are some really beautiful New Year's traditions that you took part of when you were a youngster. Eid celebrations, this was a characteristic of the rural Afghanistan. With the children, we would go house after house. And we had these plastic bags with us. We have we would receive a lot of popcorn, boiled eggs, different kinds of nuts and cookies. And at the end of the day, when we returned home, we would have a lot of things to eat. But I was very much uh, fond of the eggs as when they boiled them, they would put colors, beautiful colors, blue, uh, you know, orange. I was fascinated by the colors on the shells of the eggs. So I would collect them. And so did my cousins uh, in the rural areas that I would uh, visit during the Eid celebrations. And uh, I couldn't wait for the Eid uh, celebrations to start, actually. Uh, because of this particular practice that you would go around and spend a good five, six hours to go you know, into multiple villages, and then come back with all the souvenirs. Good memories. Those are actually the very few good memories before the wars and everything started. I mean, the war was already going uh, across the Afghanistan, but since we were in the cities, we wouldn't feel it. But uh, it was already hell for the people Hey, do you happen to know if the National Museum is open yet or again? I know it closed around the afternoon of August 15th. Have you heard anything? Uh, it remains closed. Mm -hmm. The Taliban haven't yet introduced any new director. And from what I understand, the former director of the National Museum is still in Kabul. I don't know if he's going to his duty or not. Do you know if Barber's Gardens is open? Barber's Garden is open, and there were a lot of children. I was passing by the other day, and there was a long line of families trying to get tickets and to get in. Mm -hmm. um, but most of the people who are coming are the Taliban soldiers, right. not the public. That's very new. Yeah, I've seen some of those video clips of the Taliban, you know, on the paddle boats mm. at the lake and on the amusement park rides. And it's it's just so weird and interesting to see. Yes. Them, right? To see yes. them, they're praying and then they jump on the amusement park rides. and Precisely. But Jamal, let's linger on this for a second because, you know, people are seeing this in the press. And I think many people that are reading the newspapers don't realize that these are people who didn't grow up in Kabul, people that never had the benefits of city living and all of the benefits a city has to offer. It also speaks to what you know about, which is socioeconomic dynamics. 
So what is the socioeconomic dynamic at play right now with the Taliban floating around the city? That's a very interesting point, valid to a huge extent. There are a lot of Taliban members who are from our surrounding districts of Kabul, but they had not seen the capital city itself until the 15th of August. From a socioeconomic perspective, those Taliban members who are coming from provinces far from Kabul, for example, from the south or from the north, there has always been an urban rural divide in Afghanistan and that the Afghan elites in the urban areas forgot about the rural uh, Afghans. And that incrementally built agitation with the people from the rural sides, that the elites are not counting them as uh, equal to themselves. And the economic uh, differences are huge. Is this going to bring the rural areas up to the level of the cities, or is this going to pull cities like Kabul down to the level of the rural areas? It will pull Kabul down to the level of the rural areas immediately, but in the long run, it's Kabul that takes over. I'm seeing this from the experience of uh, not only the Taliban, but the Mujahideen when they first came to Kabul in 92, which was the last Soviet-backed government in Kabul. So can I ask you a couple of questions, Jamal, that I'm just really curious about? Because I haven't been to Kabul in in quite a while. Sure, please. So are the wedding halls very busy these days and lit up? And you know how you're driving around Kabul and there are these bright wedding halls and they're like carnival of lights. Are they still busy in this time? Are they even playing music? This is very interesting. I was supposed to go to one this evening Mm -hmm. and uh, I called it off uh, because we were doing this. No, uh, no, we kept you from a wedding. No, we kept you from a wedding. No, no. No, the thing is that, uh, which takes us directly to the music, the music is still getting played. A couple of days back, it was my cousin's wedding and surprisingly, this music was as loud as ever. The only difference was that there was no live music, but it was played. Recorded music, only recorded music, Uh interesting. Recorded music, uh, they were on the loudspeakers. Mm-hmm. Taliban from the police district uh, frequently patrolled the area. They could clearly hear it. Mm-hmm. And um, there seems to be no problem with that. Mm-hmm. And I thought to myself, why is there no live music? A lot of the musicians have run away or uh, have gone to hide of yeah. the Taliban takeover of Kabul because of uh, their treatment of musicians in the uh, first emirate in the 90s. There are a lot of wedding ceremonies taking place because a lot of people who are engaged are trying to get out and they want to take their fiancés, now wives, with them. So you can imagine the rush on hotels. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. <laughs> the hotels are the real winners. Yeah. yeah the wedding halls. Right. Wow. Hey, thank you. Thank you for doing this with us. You're very welcome. As an Afghan, it gives me a huge sense of pride that archaeologists put so much importance on the cultural heritage of Afghanistan that deserves the preservation, the attention, that the right things about to be uh, spoken of. Uh, I think that this is the greatest service you are doing to Afghanistan cultural heritage. I'm a very positive looking person, so I really hope for the best. Thank you very much. Yes, thank you. Thank you. Uh, Hey, I'm so sorry you missed the wedding. I'm really sorry. 
You've been listening to Monuments Woman with Laura Tedesco. I'm your host, George Gavrilis. Don't forget to like and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. To stay in touch, also follow us on Instagram at The Monuments Woman. Join us next week when we dive deeper. This show is produced by Christian D. Brune and May 11 Project. It is recorded by Audovita Studios and edited by Sean Hedinger and Greg Williams. The theme song is This Love by Ariana Delawari, featuring Salar Nader. Produced by Audovita Studios. Connect your voice to the world.